I like his perspective, particularly at the end of the video there where he says, <clears throat> I think it would be good for all of us to start with a clean slate. You know, when it comes to how we interact with other people, particularly those who are not following Christ. I think there's real wisdom. Anytime we decide to reflect or reevaluate our approach to people that don't believe like we do or think like we do or act like we do, I, I think it's good to periodically ask myself, how do I approach people who are different than I am? And how do they see me? How do I come across? What impressions do I leave people with that I meet who are different than me? I think it's good for us as Christians who are commanded to make disciples of all nations, by the way, not just our nation, our tribe, our community, our friends, the people that we get the most, the people that we're most comfortable with. No, we're, we're commanded to make disciples of every tribe, of every nation, of every creed, every race, every ethnicity, every culture, even those we don't particularly understand or even like. And so because of that command and the fact that we live in such a culturally diverse area, I think it is important and spiritually healthy for us in the context of being effective disciple makers to ask these questions of ourselves. Questions that may arrive at some difficult answers, some uncomfortable realities, but I think we have to face those awkward truths about ourselves in those moments of self-evaluation and personal reflection if we're going to accurately reflect Christ in the world because he was no respecter of persons. He didn't, he didn't hold prejudice in the way that we often do when faced with someone that we don't understand and who maybe doesn't understand us. In uh, Acts 10, 34 and 35, after the Holy Spirit led Peter to Cornelius' house, Cornelius was a Roman soldier, he was a Gentile, a centurion, uh, the last person that a good Jew like Peter would ever normally consider sharing the gospel with, and in his home at that, and the Bible says Cornelius was a God-fearer. That means he was a Gentile who worshipped the God of Israel, but he was still a Gentile. And in, in the first century, Jews and Gentiles didn't typically hang out together much. Typically, uh, they despised one another. They didn't understand one another and didn't want to. Their perspectives on the world and on life and God and family and everything else were often polar opposites. And yet the Spirit of God sends Peter to Cornelius' house, which in and of itself was a big deal for a Jew to enter a Gentile's house. And Peter shares the gospel and Cornelius and his entire household receive Christ. The Holy Spirit fills them. They speak in tongues. They're praising God together and they were all baptized. And in Acts 10, 34 and 35, Peter says, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. In every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Romans 2.11, Paul explains that God shows no partiality. And he says that in the context of the very same subject that James is writing about in chapter 2 of his letter, which we'll be studying today. So as we continue our sermon series, James the Just, this morning we'll be working our way through the first 13 verses of chapter 2 in a message entitled, Mercy is Greater Than Judgment, where we find James explaining to these Jewish Christians that his letter was written to that they cannot show partiality, unfair preference, 
to those who are not like them or to those that they view as having more or less worth than others based on appearances and, and culture and socioeconomic status and so on. And remember, James wrote this letter to uh, Jewish Christians that were outside of Palestine. They were scattered uh, throughout most of the ancient Mediterranean world at this point. So the cultures that these churches were in were greatly varied, very diverse, not unlike many of the cultures, the local cultures in America today, where we have people from all walks of life and backgrounds living all around us. And so today as we study our way through the first half of this chapter, I'd like for us to do some self-assessment. Maybe ask ourselves as we go and even after today, how do others see me? How do they perceive me when I interact with them, particularly those who aren't like me. And we can apply these questions about ourselves as we interact with people around us from other races, ethnicities, uh, backgrounds, upbringings, people that live by a, a different religion, different sexual orientation, different political persuasions, whatever the case may be. And although some of the answers to those questions may make us uncomfortable, it is right and necessary that we confront those answers with honesty and integrity because Jesus commanded us to make disciples of all nations. And if we're going to be effective in that, we have to be willing to enter into the world of others, into their culture, their homes, their neighborhoods, no matter how uncomfortable that may make us feel, just like Peter did, just like Paul did, just like Jesus did. And share the gospel with love and compassion and interest and mercy with zero partiality. And I don't think that comes naturally to most of us. But it is to be the way of the Christian because that is the way of Jesus Christ as we see, as we examine his life in scripture. Okay, So let's jump into the second chapter of James's letter. And see what we can glean from his instruction here to these first century Jewish Christians. And along the way, we'll highlight some observations that James points out in his letter that may help us to overcome uh, some of these predispositions that I think we may have about other people who aren't like us. Okay, so we'll begin chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So in true James fashion, just as we saw last week in chapter 1, right here from the beginning of chapter 2, he points his audience directly back to Christ, even while he's introducing a new topic of discussion among the church members. He says, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He didn't have to throw in that last bit about Jesus being the Lord of glory, but he did because he's opening up this discussion about church members who are showing favoritism, and you'll see that in a minute. They were glorifying one group of people in the church over another. And so James makes it a point to direct their attention back to Jesus Christ. He emphasizes the glory of Jesus Christ over and above all others. In other words, if, if we're captivated by Jesus first... We won't have to be captivated by anyone else, no matter how impressive they may seem, because all of our affections will be set on Christ first. This is, this is exactly how we should approach every relationship, both inside and outside of the church. 
if Jesus Christ is our priority, if he is our first concern, our first love, our first consideration, then the intimidation factor of other people, even really impressive people, it just sort of goes away. Because the more time that you spend basking in the knowledge and understanding and presence of the Spirit of Christ, the more you realize that everyone else are just human beings. It's hard to glorify the creation when you spend most of your time with the Creator. So witnessing to people and sharing Christ with others becomes far less intimidating when you've just come out of a conversation with the Almighty God. I found that to be true in my own life. Likewise, the temptation to idolize other people becomes far less attractive when you've just spent time worshiping Jesus Christ. And so James is reminding the church of just exactly who it is that they hold their faith in because no one else is worthy of glory but Jesus himself. In fact, <clears throat> it's not just that Jesus alone is worthy of glory. That phrase in the original Greek can also be translated as Jesus who is the glory. So when we glorify others, we not only idolize them instead of or in place of Christ, but we're actually ascribing to them characteristics that in reality only reside in the person of Jesus Christ. So effectively, we're taking God traits and we're attributing them to human beings, to, to people who could never possess those qualities, those God qualities. And so when we do that, in essence, we're creating false gods. We're idolizing others' lives. And we see that it's become rampant in our celebrity-filled culture today. You can, you can see how potentially serious this idea of glorifying other people can be. As we'll see in verse 4, James calls it evil. Right? In verse 9, he calls it sin. And he says, those who behave this way are transgressors of the law. So, thank God that we have his mercy and grace. Otherwise, we'd be in a lot of trouble, right? Let's keep reading verses 2 through 4. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit on my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So James says, look, when a visitor comes in your church and has all the appearances of wealth and you treat him with greater honor than the visitor that comes in with the appearance of poverty, you're judging them with evil thoughts, right? Now, there is a place within the body of Christ, and we've, we've talked about this at length before, and in fact, we'll address it again in a few weeks as James wades into this subject further, uh, further on in his letter. But here, uh, he uses the word partiality to describe the treatment that the church members are giving visitors, newcomers, and we know he's talking about visitors because they're being directed to their seats by members, right? If they were regular members, they wouldn't need to be directed to their seats. And so he's addressing this predisposition of people in the church toward people that they know nothing about. These are people as they walk in the first time they see them, other than their appearance. And James 1, he calls their behavior showing partiality. That word is actually a combination of terms in the ancient Greek that literally means to receive according to the face. 
So they're making judgments about people according to appearances strictly and their status in society. Okay? And so, again, there are appropriate circumstances within the body of Christ where we exercise judgment with one another as a means of holding each other accountable for sin. And again, we've talked about that at length, and we will again in the next few weeks. Somehow, along the way, uh, we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. And, and we, we hear constantly now in people's regular course of discussion about Christianity, don't, don't judge me. Right? Jesus said, don't judge. James said, don't judge. We're not supposed to judge each other. I hear that ad nauseum. We have, we have taken that to its extreme, to now that we're living outside of the whole counsel of God, where we are absolutely to judge one another within the body of Christ for the purpose of holding one another accountable for sin. Now, we'll go into that in depth, and we've done it before, but some of you maybe weren't here. James gets into that, and I think, uh, I think it's chapter 4, so we'll talk about that in a few weeks. Paul talks about that, by the way, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Jesus talks about it in Matthew chapter 7. James talks about it in, I think, chapter 4 of this letter. And so we'll get there. But here, he's talking about something altogether different when he talks about judging. Okay, This isn't so much referring to judging or holding one another accountable for sin among the family of believers. James is talking about judging a book by its cover, to put it in modern terms. He's talking about making judgments about the importance or value of people that we don't even know yet, solely based on how they look. And he says it's evil. And the church cannot engage in that kind of behavior. And yet... The fact is we all have predispositions toward other things and toward other people and toward other places. We just do. Things that we've never seen, people that we've never met, and places that we've never been. And that's a result of a lot of things, experiences in our lives, our upbringing, our environment, our education, our cultural background, uh, the media, popular opinions, and on and on. And those predispositions not only affect our worldview, but they can greatly affect how we interact with others, uh, even those that we've never met before. I think we're taught at a very early age to be enamored by certain things and certain kinds of people and certain places, and yet to be indifferent uh, or turned off or even repulsed by others. And so when you couple those predispositions with a culture that creates a new celebrity about every five seconds, you end up with a lot of idolatry in our society. We, we even name television shows after our, our idols now, right? In Jonah 2.8, in part of his prayer to God, he says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. When we follow after idols, we forsake eternal reward for temporary pleasure. And so the key to rejecting idolatry in our lives is found when we're more captivated with Christ than we are with the world. You see, so it's not just about avoiding the idols, it's about being with Jesus Christ. In Luke 9.23, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily, and follow me. And so we focus a lot on the self-denial part of that verse, which isn't wrong, but it ignores the other half, the part where we follow Jesus. Right? If, if we're going to reject idolatry in our lives, there has to be a better alternative to whatever is in front of us at any given moment that happens to be shiny and impressive. Right? I mean, it's hard to be enamored with a brand new scooter when there's a Ferrari sitting right next to it. Right? So it's not just about denying our own impulses when it comes to idolatry. It's about the infinitely better alternative 
And of course, that alternative is Jesus Christ. And so, although we're clearly commanded, yes, by Jesus to deny ourselves, rejecting idolatry in your life is not achieved solely by denying yourself. It is achieved by spending time in the presence of God. In the glory of Christ, as James says, as we follow him, as we are with him, spending time with him daily in prayer and in his word. If we're to avoid the evil of showing partiality that James describes, that we must make Christ our chief concern. And what happens, and this is the beautiful part of this, what happens when we do that, when we spend the time that we should in the presence of God, he unifies our hearts. He binds us together by His Spirit to the point that we no longer focus on outward appearances because we begin to see people the way that He sees them. Uh, I went to seminary in England. Many of you know that. And uh, it was a, a British, it is a British university, but there are students there from all over the world that come to study there. And so in just the first two or three days that I was there, before classes started, I was meeting all of these people that were coming in and uh, there were Eastern Europeans, you know, Eastern Bloc countries. There were, of course, Western Europeans. Um, there were Middle Easterners there. There were uh, lots of Africans, uh, Asians. There was uh, at least one American redneck from South Carolina. And we're all in this place mixed in together. And, and as I got to know them, what I realized is some of them doctrinally, uh, politically, uh, were extremely liberal, professing Christians, but extremely liberal. Some of the British Anglicans are very liberal people, to the point that some of the extremely conservatives would have probably said, I'm not sure they're even Christians. Okay, and I'm not making that case. I'm just painting a picture for the dichotomy here. Right? We had um, everything in between. You had the liberals, you had the conservatives, uh, some of the, the African uh, brothers and sisters live in countries where if it's found out that you're a homosexual, you could be thrown into prison or worse. These people were incredibly conservative. And then you had the opposite extreme, the, some of the Anglicans and other uh, liberal denominations. And then you had people there from Muslim backgrounds. They were raised in Islam. Look at things totally differently. There were pastors there that were raised their whole lives in, in communism. And that whole different view of the government and how we should interact and how the church and state and all of those issues, completely different. The Asians, some of them coming from Eastern religions into Christianity, completely different worldview and perspective on doctrine and theology. And I'm thinking to myself, we're all going to be cooped up together in this school for a long time. If World War III is ever going to start, I think it's going to start in this seminary, right? It was crazy, the mix of people. And yet what happened was we sat in those classes day after day, side by side, studying the Bible together in perfect unity and harmony. It was, it was such an amazingly beautiful thing. I'd never experienced anything like that before. And then at night, we'd all leave and everybody wants to eat. So you go to the local pubs because we're out in the English countryside and these little pubs. So everybody goes to the pubs, the professors, everybody. And we order our dinner and some guys order a beer and some of them order a glass of wine and some of them order a whiskey and some of them order water because they didn't have sweet tea. <laughs> and my, and we're all sitting around the table eating and drinking and talking about Jesus Christ. It was awesome. But 
the first day we were there, something happened that I believe set that tone for the rest of my experience at that school. We went in the first day and they gathered us at the student center and the president of the grad school stands up and he says, uh, in front of you is a syllabus. In just a moment, we're going to uh, go through that together in an orientation. But before we do, we're going to say a word of prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? And he bowed his head. And he said, Dear Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be here together to study your word and to learn more about you. But we don't want to do anything else from this moment forward without you guiding us and leading us. So we ask you now, Holy Spirit, to come. And it was that for literally minutes. He stood there with his head bowed and everybody had their head bowed except me. I'm looking around wondering what's going on because I'm waiting for the amen and it doesn't come. And literally we sat there for minutes in complete silence. You could have heard a pin drop. And to be totally honest with you, at first it was very awkward. It was almost agonizing. But as it went on, minute after minute after minute, it became very peaceful. And then after a couple of more minutes, it became very powerful. I was sitting there, and in an instant, it wasn't a gradual thing, I remember just in an instant, physically feeling the presence of God. Like that. And... I felt the presence of God before he dwells in me. He's always with us. I get that. I understand he's already there. We don't have to wait for, for some magical moment every time we meet together. I understand that. But I'm telling you, there was a manifestation of the Spirit at that moment that I thought was maybe just something I was feeling. And it was an instantaneous, overwhelming, profoundly powerful sensation of the presence of God. And the instant that I felt that, a woman on the other side of the room very softly began to weep. And immediately, someone else began to cry. And then people very respectfully, very quietly, very calmly began to just worship God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I will never forget that the rest of my life. I've never experienced anything like it before or since. It was incredible. And it, that went on for about a minute. And then the, the president of the school lifted his head up and he said, Father, thank you for hearing our prayer and answering our prayer. Now we can continue. Open your syllabus to page one and we'll start our orientation. And he just went right down. And I was like, wait. I mean, it was such an amazing thing. But it was very matter of fact and very simple. He said, we're going we're to ask for the spirit to guide us and now we're ready to move on. The point is this. I'm sitting in this room with all of these other people and I have all of these ideas about how this thing is going to go or not go. And I'm convinced it's going to get ugly. We should never make judgments about people. Number one, that we don't even know yet. Number two, because when we spend time in God's presence, we reflect the glory of Christ. 
You see, I believe that the unity that was experienced in that school from that point on was set by the tone of that first day, that meeting, as we spent time in the presence of God to the point that you spend enough time with him that you have no need of earthly things to impress you anymore. Moses didn't need a golden calf. Because while the Israelites were busy making their idols, he was spending time in the presence of God. And he reflected the glory of God when he came back down off that mountain to the point that not only was he not impressed with the shiny golden idol that the others were worshiping, but he was repulsed by it. Because he had just been with the one. He'd been with the only one that was worthy to be worshiped. And that is the key to keeping our hearts away from idols when we keep our hearts fixed on Jesus Christ and we spend time in his presence. But James goes even further than that because it's not just about us. It's about them. It's about the people that we pass judgment on before we even know them. Let's keep reading. Verses 5 through 7. He says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man, Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? James says you've dishonored the poor man. In other words, you don't see people the way that God sees them. You're honoring the ones who blaspheme Christ and dishonoring the ones who should be receiving greater attention. Last verse of chapter 1, if you remember from last week, ties in directly with this chapter. In fact, it's really a preamble to chapter 2. James says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Proverbs 19.17 says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. Jesus said, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Luke 14, 13, and 14. Okay? Jesus' own heart was for the poor. And so, so should we be. But James says, when we show partiality, inevitably it is the poor who are dishonored. J.A. Motyer wrote, that the sin of partiality is the sin of judging by accidentals and externals, and it always bears down on the poor and disadvantaged. And yet again, James points out in verse 5, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? And I love how F.B. Meyer puts it. He says, The rich man may trust him, but the poor man must. The poor man has no fortress in which to hide except the two strong arms of God. Right? So not only do we create potential idols in our lives when we show partiality, but we also dishonor those that we're supposed to love and minister to. And James points that out in the last part of our text this morning. Let's read it, verses 8 through 13. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. 
For judgment is without mercy to one who's shown, shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So he quotes Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which he refers to as the royal law. It's a phrase uh, that comes from the Greek word basilikos. It literally means the law belonging to the king. In other words, this law of loving one another as much as we love ourselves is the very apex of the laws of God's kingdom next to the part where we love him first. And Jesus, we know, said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend which parts of the law and the prophets. All the law. And the prophets, Matthew 22, 37 through 40. Romans 13, 8 through 10. Paul says, I owe nothing to any, owe no one anything, excuse me, except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So God in Leviticus, Jesus in Matthew, Paul in Romans, James in his letter, they're all saying the same thing. We must love our neighbor, and particularly in tangible ways to those who are poor and unable to help themselves. So how do we do that? Well, James spells it out in verses 12 and 13. It's mercy. We show mercy to all. We don't judge those we don't know. We don't favor those who look better than others or act like they, uh, we think they should or make us feel comfortable, more comfortable than others. No, we, we show mercy to everyone and especially to those who cannot help themselves. This is how Jesus looked at those around him and especially the poor and helpless. Okay, when you, when you truly see people the way that God sees them, you'll be looking at them through a heart that is filled with mercy. It's easy to get caught up in issues, especially with everything going on with our government today and the, and the media constantly promoting the cultural and religious divide between the church and the rest of society. And so I know... It is really easy to become consumed by the issues and the debates and the political positions of all the factions involved. But listen, Jesus didn't die for issues or debates or political positions. He died for human souls. Despite our brokenness and the ugliness of our sin, our, our spiritual filth, even with all of the baggage and dysfunction, he looked on us with a heart that was full of mercy. And because of that compassionate mercy, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He did the unthinkable for a world that had, for the most part, rejected him fought against him, took away his rights, and mistreated him in every possible way. And so, if we want to truly live like Christ, that means when the world rejects us, and fights against us, and takes away our rights, and mistreats us in every possible way, we still, in spite of all of it, we still lay down our lives for others, because we won't see them anymore as the adversary. We see them as human souls, 
And our hearts will be full of mercy even when they don't deserve mercy. We must love those who don't love us back. In fact, we must love those who can't pay us back. The widows and the orphans and the poor that James talks about here and Jesus talked about all through his ministry. Meyer said, The poor man has no fortress in which to hide except the two strong arms of God. What do you think those arms of God are? It's his body. It's the church. It's us. We are the arms and hands that reach out to provide for those who cannot help themselves, who cannot care for themselves, even though they don't look like we do or act like we do or think like we do or even believe like we do. Because we're the body of Christ. When he reaches out to others, he does it through us. Mercy saved us from what we deserved. That's why it's greater than judgment. Because judgment can only condemn brokenness and hopelessness. Mercy overcomes it. Mercy is greater than judgment. It's our job to be the two strong arms of God. It's our job to be mercy to a world full of people who are helpless and hopeless and hurting. The fact is the world needs, whether they know it or not, the world needs the church. The world needs the church. Not to be political or prideful, but to be full of mercy. On a day